So tonight I'd like to uh, continue and offer some reflections on um, a theme that I'm calling silence and fire. Um, And it was inspired by a picture that I've brought in to show you, that a conference that Adele here organized uh, in April. And this was the backdrop of the place. This is the conference I spoke about where Brian Keenan spoke. And the backdrop and the logo of the conference, which was called the Heart of Silence, this was the logo on the conference, um, of the conference. So this, you can see it. Can you see it? (laughs) Too bad. (laughs) Time to let go. I'll tell you what it is. It's, It's black, pure black backdrop like the night sky. And then here in this is a flame, is the spark, is the fire in the middle of that. And when I saw it, I saw this, uh, you know, if, if maybe you and some of you have a relationship with the beauty of the black night sky, or maybe that quality of that uh, potent dark that comes in the night in silence, or maybe you've experienced it here in the hall in silence, that there's something of that beautiful black quality that it can feel like can sometimes permeate our whole being, kind of rendering us quiet and surrendered, which we've been speaking about. And then in the middle of that, here's the fire. Here's the little emblem for passion. That's how I saw it. Of the fire in there. So. I have a few ideas. Let's start with the spark. (laughs) This phrase comes to mind. You know, one of the differences between being alive and dead. And I don't say that lightly. In fact, last week I was sitting with a dear friend. and her body had been laid out. She died last week, and her body was laid out um, for friends to come and be with. And uh, she uh, was 87. It was, uh, you know, as deaths go, it was blessed. And she, in fact, she was a Dharma friend. She and I first met her 20 four years ago at Gaia House, which used to be in another village, and we sat a month long in silence together in a circle, just 12 of us. And um, that's where I got to know her. And she was uh, a benefactor to me, um, kind of nudging me along the path, realizing where some of my gaps were, (laughs) Uh, and saying, try this, my dear, go this way. Go this way. She had. She was a benevolent benefactor in that way, and she would be very happy for me to talk about her dead body if it was of any benefit to anyone. Um, such was her generosity, and if you've ever had the privilege of um, really being at that cusp or uh, during or after death, is a very, very apparently big difference 
between being alive and dead on one level. And what struck me, this was one of the most animated women I had ever met. She was a sparky, feisty lady. Right to the end, she even, I found out at the funeral, and she would be very happy to, for me to tell you this, I have no doubt. She even got a new boyfriend about six months ago. And, um, you know, it was, she was really alive. Um, but what's there in that being with her, you know, this mystery for a start, it's her but it's not her, is that something of that spark, something of that animation that we see in each other when we dare to look, we see in ourselves when we're not only attributing it all to me and mine as we've been exploring. I probably don't have to tell you more, you know you're a spark. <laughs> it's not a language we always use, it can sometimes sound like religious language or old-fashioned language. We might be allowed to say it, you know, you say, oh, he's a bright spark or they're a bright spark. As if it's only to do with the intellect, that's one part of the spark, this beautiful gift. But our spark is there in our heart that flicker of what we love, going towards what we love. The flicker, the spark is there in our life force, in our yeah, our animating life force that kind of has us moving around, more or less vitalized in a moment. So how is your spark? Does, does the language resonate at all? Um, I hope so. If you're not sure, come and meet with one of us tomorrow. <laughs> the spark, we don't always recognize it, though, and that's what I'll, I'll speak about a little bit. But that which, that which, in a way, distinguishes us while we're alive. What is that when I'm not appropriating it? for me or mine. Something I've got to do something about this thing while I'm alive. It's problematic enough, isn't it? I've got to do something. <laughs> Suddenly there I am as this animated being. What do I do with this? What do I do about this? She's one of the things that struck me. Again, so death is a theme. Death, death um, is a big theme in Dharma practice, a big reflection to help us remember that that's, where we're heading to help us clarify while we're here what we want to dedicate this spark to. <coughs> I'm just remembering my dad now. Um, actually, I think he was the first intimate person that I sat with his body after he had died. Um, and I sat with him for some time on my own uh, uh, in that kind of mysterious space of, well, it looks like my dad. You know, he had the same haircut I had given him a few weeks before. Same little scar he'd always had under his lip. 
so wasn't my dad. And the mind tries to, like absolutes, tends to like, well, is it or isn't it, you know? But as I stayed with him and then took the bus afterwards back into Croydon, I sat in the shopping centre just kind of contemplating the resonance of, of what I had seen. And I saw these people walking around. And there was this little family, his family there arguing about something and little love couple over there doing something and other people busy. And, and it was like I was looking at them with whole new eyes. I was like, wow, look. And what came to my mind was, look, all these animated corpses. <laughs> it's like, wow, how did they do that? It wasn't morbid. It wasn't, it was just sheer amazement. It's like, goodness gracious, how do they just stand up and sparkle? And then how do they argue? And how do they kiss? And how do they... There's this amazement that can really, really support us to see that spark in another. You may see it in a child. You see it often when the vitality is strong, but it's there even as the vitality fades. So how is your spark and what is it dedicated to? You know, we have the image of the, um, the, the classic Western image of the spark is, of course, this... I've never been, because you had to pay to get in, and I was too stingy at the time, <laughs> in the Sistine Chapel, with this image of the divine spark, right? These two hands. There's this spark between, in this narrative, between God and human. Where it starts, it doesn't say, actually doesn't from a dharma perspective we wouldn't even attribute a first cause to that hand and then this hand right but we can sense the spark we can sense while we're here we're animated we're alive this is what we've got what shall we do with it There's a confusion about this spark, and this, this language of spark, it's more poetic, it's not something I'm ever aware that the Buddha would have used, but um, what he was good at was teaching us and showing us how to see where we get snagged, where this, this life that we are gets caught up, gets entangled, gets confused, gets, in a way, the spark gets... Uh, limited and constrained because we're confused about the nature of being here at all. It's like we don't know what to do with this thing. We're confused because, partly because we keep appropriating this, I'm going to call it this, this life, this spark, and think it has something to do with me and I've got to manage it and sort it out and do something about it. So he was a master at showing us Suffering and the end of suffering. The places where I keep getting snagged, or I don't keep getting snagged, this spark keeps getting snagged and then it feels like it's me. It feels terrible. feels like it's me. They say that a Buddha 
And so this, when I say the word Buddha, it doesn't mean just the North Indian Siddhartha Gautama from two and a half thousand years ago. A Buddha, Buddha is this is this awakened aspect that each of us is, but we're more or less shrouded. We're more or less boxed in. Remember this lovely image yesterday of this teacher of mine. I'm going to tell it again because I like it so much. Where we we bought her a present at the end of a course she taught. It was a statue actually. It was a it was one of these Quanian uh, statues. Somebody asked about this actually. Said, would we say more about her? Um, yes, we will. <laughs> I'll finish this story first. And uh, we had wrapped up this statue in brown paper with string, and hand and the women of the group handed this uh, to her. And she started to take the string off, and she said, "Thank you." She, and she was full of passion, and she said, "And I'd rather be unwrapping you." I'd rather be unwrapping you. And her, there's a kind of desire in that. There's a kind of lustiness in her love of us. But it wasn't that kind of sticky one where I felt anything other than thoroughly respected and seen. She still had the equanimity, right? This is a quality that we're also looking at in this retreat. She had the equanimity. This is the one of the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings of the heart that we looked at yesterday in the guided meditation. And the phrase I used yesterday, remember we had my friend, I care about your suffering, I rejoice in your goodness and beauty. And then the fourth one is, and I will leave you intact as you are right now. I will let you be as and where you are right now. I can sense your, whatever it is in her case, let's say she could sense, I know your divine spark is still shrouded a little bit, my love. And I'm here to support you, to unwrap but I will let you be exactly where you are with what you're with. So the equanimity with this passion, imagine she can see. I'm attributing this seeing to her. She's a very beautiful and great teacher. That she can see that we're not just our limited view of ourselves. But it's very clear to her that those wrappings are more secondary than our awakened nature. But the work of the path, in a way, is to understand that process of how come then I keep perceiving myself as this separate thing over here, and I look out, and then there's that world out there, and I've got to do something about it and me, I'm certainly supposed to do something, aren't I? (laughs) I'm supposed to do something with this, this kit. One of the things that's said about a Buddha is that a Buddha dwells in Shunyata Vihara, 
the dwelling place of emptiness. Not empty meaning barren. Empty here meaning that she has is thoroughly empty of compulsion. She has emptied out her compulsion to keep creating herself. That the dwelling place of the Buddha is uh, wholeness. That she isn't selecting a particular aspect as who she is. Neither this love, nor this sorrow, this brightness, nor this pain. That the awakening is both the embracing and the transcending, the widening around any particular point in the cosmos. Meaning, any sensation, any emotion, any thought, any tree, any mind state, any infinite consciousness, any passion, any dispassion. The compulsion to have to make myself one of those things and not another one of those things, that's been emptied out. So when I was thinking about this earlier, I was thinking of this spark, this divine spark when we don't know uh, what to do about ourselves? Have you ever had the experience where you don't know what to do about yourself? <laughs> I think there's a verse translated from Nagarjuna. No, from Sh- from Shantideva. That's right. One of those guys. Somebody can correct me. Somebody can tell me which one it is. But there's this lovely line translated as, "What do you do with a life that doesn't go away?" <laughs> it's like, right here it is. What if we look at it this way, that this spark, suddenly we're here with this animated thing for a while. What if that divine spark, when we don't know what it is, is like a kind of twitch, you know, like a pilot light in a, in a gas boiler. You've got this little pilot light flicking around, flickering around there. What if this divine spark, that we sense this flickering and we go, ooh, and we sense it from the perspective of self and go, oh, blimey. Oh, got to do something. It's like a twitch at the center of us. I've got to, oh, what I've got to do with this? I've got to make something happen. Got to, got to get out of here. <laughs> Someone recognizes that one. <laughs> Who doesn't recognize that one? Got to get out of here. Right. Then what about if that little spark is, when we're seeing it the wrong way, is like a twitch, a restless twitch. And one of my teachers, he says, restlessness, this restless twitch is the foundation of all the hindrances. All the hindrances have at root this compulsive need to Do something about something, right? Now, when I say this, this is not really what, this is such an important thing to watch the mind that goes, oh, does that mean Buddhists say we don't have to do anything? 
No, it doesn't. But it is inquiring deeply into where does action come from? Action to open my mouth. Action to stand up for what needs standing up for. Action to withdraw. Action to come forward. Where does it come from? If it's not coming from this perception of restlessness. Do you know the kind of action that comes from that? Got to do something about something. <laughs> and we see it, I see it on retreat. It's so humbling. If you sit here long enough, it gets worse. <laughs> Sometimes. <clears throat> you know, I think I'm cool before I come on retreat. Well, I, I, I didn't know if I was or not, but I liked the idea that I was cool. Until I actually... I wasn't cool at all. I, I went to India to try and be a hippie, but I wasn't cool enough. <laughs> I was too, too highly strong. I think. But, um, but anyway, I thought I was cool. So I... Uh, yeah, and you come on retreat and you actually you realize, oh, it's not just about what I want to decide I am here. It's about really understanding what is this, this movement... And what is this um, urgency sometimes where my action it feels compelled? I think that's, that's the point. We can be urgent. There are things that need attending to in our life and in our world. But I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about where we're compelled to have to do something about something. I remember, or it happens so often on retreat, um, I'm suddenly flooded with examples, I can't even sort of select one. What have you been compelled? It can be really simple things where we're just compelled to clean my teeth again today. Clean them more. The only time I floss my teeth is when I'm on retreat. <laughs> I haven't quite you too. <laughs> Suddenly these, these it's good, it's a good skill, but I haven't managed to integrate them completely. <laughs> but it can get it can feel really urgent at times, some of the things, you know, I've got to yeah, it's really important. It wasn't ever important before, but suddenly it's really important. Or I I um I remember I had been on staff at Gaia House, and so I was a bit identified. You know when you kind of get involved in something, you're a little bit more identified. It's a little bit more sticky uh, very often. And I remember being in the kitchen doing a yogi job, washing up supper. And first I was really angry because I was the only person on the job. It wasn't in a big retreat. It was in between retreats. Um, and there was a whole... whole thing about that but at but one point there was these old cupboards that used to be in there that the paintwork was really shabby it was really really shabby and I was doing my yogi job and washing up and angry because they hadn't taken care of me by giving me other yogis to work with and nobody cares about me and that so okay yeah okay and then there was this someone has to paint the cupboards this is outrageous no, but I'm all in my, in my own poor old mind, all on my own. This is outrageous. Someone has to do something about it. Has anyone had someone has to do something about it here yet this week, about something, either probably about one of us needs, we could use some, something done about some of us. <laughs> and, 
And it was it became the most important thing. I thought I cared about the world until that moment. And actually, I cared about why somebody hadn't done this really, really, really important thing. And actually, if I, as I stay longer, it took a few weeks, I think, to have some insight into that. But staying longer with my feet on the ground, wow, there's that flicker, that spark, that restlessness. Somebody has to, okay, okay, enough mindfulness in that moment. Okay, what's happening here? Yeah, but somebody has to, okay. Where's the suffering right now? Is anyone else suffering? No. Not about the cupboard. Okay. Okay, what's here? And there's that restless, flickering, burning, and this little sense of self trying to arise of, please, this kind of helplessness, please take care of me, essentially. I projected myself onto the cupboard. Sounds weird, but you know, the mind <laughs> can do very strange things. Right? Staying long enough with that. So here's where the spiritual faculties develop the mindfulness. Bearing this in mind, not believing it, bearing it in mind, bearing attention with this, sensing it with the body, sensing the heat, sensing the pain, the dukkha, the confusion, the. Um, the helplessness, and then the clarity. Oh, this is helplessness. The faith, the faculty of faith comes. Oh yeah, I've had got enough practice at this point that this is, I know, even though it feels like it's me and mine, this is not me or mine. This is arising due to conditions. The faith, the mindfulness, the wisdom that can start to discern What's here, what's not here? What happens if I attend in this way? What happens if I attend in this way? The energy, the willingness, and enough concentration that that impulse could start to empty. The impulse, the twitch to keep activating myself into existence. And in that, there's, there's the thought can soften and drain, the energetic, you know, like water down a plug hole. And then the quiet. And then the quiet, like, I want to show you this black, really like black. This quiet, like this black night sky where... Sometimes it's unfamiliar to us. And then have you ever seen your mind look around for something else to get activated about? It's like sometimes you can see that flicker searching around. It becomes the seeker in a way, looking for some way of getting some traction in this. Mystery. So emptying, emptying out emptying out. And what does that leave room for then? It's not an emptying out and then you disappear actually. Anyone who's any of my teachers or friends where there's been some emptying, they are apparently more and more themselves. 
That's the beauty. Not themselves in a way that's pr- just predictable. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with this self-active. It's not, it's not terrible. It's not terrible. But when it's habitual and compulsive and I keep being the one who has to do this thing, you know, I keep having to be the one who's nice. I keep having to be the one who's not nice. I keep having to be the good one. I keep having to be the bad one. Whoever I have to keep having to be. It's not terrible. It's just that then our relationship with ourself, with each other, with the world is premised on something very predictable. It's very predictable. It's repetitive. It loses the sacredness, actually, which I would say is constantly emergent, constantly creative. So it's not terrible, but if we're interested in a life that is fresh, that actually has meaning for us beyond even really beautiful and good repetitions in relationship, then some emptying is, is called for. But what does it then leave room for if the emptying is happen, happening? What does it leave room for? And I would posit that it leaves room for for the spark to be tended to be tended like you tend to a spark well becomes a fire becomes a fire can burn not just with our compulsion but burn and be dedicated to what it is that we truly wish to dedicate our life to whatever it is I have something I wanted to read you. Oh, there it is. I think I want to first say something about other way that we know passion. I think sometimes our ambivalence about our life force or our fire our spark is that you know it can get a bit wayward can't it it's you know it includes in a way includes our life force includes all our instinctual um, desires it includes our survival drive you know the urge to kind of just stay alive it includes our our instinct includes our sexual desire it includes our lustiness for consuming and having and Keeping, And so sometimes we can be a little bit ambivalent about those instinctual parts because we can see where they can wreak havoc sometimes when we're not wise, when there's no wisdom. They can wreak havoc, even if they don't wreak havoc in the world, they wreak havoc in our mind. Right. But what would it be to have those drives? This is one of my, one of my other teachers. He says, to, he talks about Imagine all those different drives that we have in us, all our instinctual drives, right? 
our survival drive, our urge to preserve ourselves, and the fire that's in that. Our social drive, our urge to be good with one another. Our sexual drive, all of those. Imagine that fire in all of those lining up, lining up with what it is you truly wish to be dedicated to whatever that is in your life. And that's why I think knowing what we're dedicated to is such, given such important uh, teaching in the tradition, knowing what we're inclining to, knowing what you want to be dedicated to, whatever it is. Otherwise the f- spark goes all over the place, right? Ah, oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And not, I'm not criticizing, I know I... I <laughs> thinking of the devotion this is recorded I might not put this on Dharma Seed I'm sure they would they be happy if I said this yes the devotion of some of my I have six older brothers and the devotion of five of them to Crystal Palace football team (laughs) it's it's actually beautiful I mean, you know, I'm sh- I don't think it's the only thing they're dedicated to, but it's so interesting, isn't it, like where our faith goes these days. <laughs> it's like you go on the terraces. I went with them all the time as a little kid. Uh, the passion. Wow. These guys come alive on a... I don't know what they're doing the rest of the week, but some of them, but wow. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm just curious what happens with that fire the rest of the week. Right? It's like sometimes like the... Because I, I grew up right around there, like the local local church. It's kind of replaced the devotion that's used to go somewhere else. But so really clarifying what it is as Mary Oliver says in that poem, she says, what, what will you do with this one wild and precious life? What will you do with this one wild and precious life? And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I don't know, just let yourself feel that flicker. It's okay. Let yourself feel, oh, no, I can't do this. I haven't got anything I'm dedicated to, and I still like football. It's okay. <laughs> you can like football. I bet the Buddha, if he came from Croydon, would support Crystal Palace. But, but yeah, but let yourself feel that flicker that actually um, might even start to panic, right? No. Hold it. Take care of it. That which panics might not be other than your divine spark. That which is feels restless might ask you to bow before it, this life that's been given, implanted here. Hold that. Tend that. It's not here forever.
I want to say something about Thomas Merton, who uh, was a contemplative silent monk for many, many, many years uh, from in the Catholic tradition, in a very austere renunciate tradition, uh, completely in silence all the time. I think he was there 30 or more years in this austere regime. Um, and then near the end of his life, he died quite young and uh, suddenly <coughs> he got permission to leave the monastery, still as a monk, I believe, but started to uh, follow more of a path of social activism that became something that he, his fire, it's like, yeah, I've done my work and I'm, I'm heading out. And we can, you know, it's, we don't have to follow his path, but I just want to highlight something he said because this is a, a man, it strikes me with a lot of this silence and a lot of passion as well. Silence and fire. And there's two pieces, actually. First is a poem that was also read at that conference by Adele's friend, Sharon, if I can find it. hope I can find it. Hmm. And um, please hold the poem poetically, it's not, not necessarily literally, but hear it as you will. So this is his invitation to us, an invitation to us. And it's really that quiet listening that can come in the silence, if you know that. Come, if you don't yet, come tonight when it's dark and listen. He says... Be still, listen. Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? Who, be quiet, as you, as these stones are quiet. Do not think of what you are, still less of what you may one day be. Rather, be what you are. But who? Be the unthinkable one you do not know. Be still while you are still alive, and all things live around you, speaking to your own being, speaking by the unknown that is in you and in themselves. I will try, like them, to be my own silence. And this is difficult. The whole world is secretly on fire. The stones burn. Even the stones, they burn me. How can a person be still or listen to all things burning? How can he dare to sit with them while all of their silence is on fire. How can he dare to sit with them while all of their silence is on fire? So he's letting us into a way he could perceive 
he could see that I don't think the stones were literally on fire. It's not that he couldn't sit still because he had to go and get the hose. Right? It's something he's speaking about that his chitta, his heart, mind, the perception has it has become malleable enough. He's done work enough, emptied out enough, sat with his own craziness enough that his heart mind has become shapeable. Its its perception is malleable. He can see things. Not that these are ultimate truths. But this seeing and hearing of the stones as both silence and fire touched him deeply. It told him something about his own soul. The silence and the fire, the active aliveness and the incredible depth. And I want to f- finish with there's something else that I found in a book from, hi- from him. Because I think he straddled those those worlds of the contemplative world and the active world, the act and the activist world. And there's a, a I'm just reminded of something else that I heard a couple of years ago from um, uh, Andrew Harvey, uh, who's social activist also, and he he has this lovely piece where he says. At this time in history, he's inviting us all to come where there's so much call for us to wake up and change our relationship with everything. <laughs> you know, it's not guaranteed really how long this, with the way we're going, how long our crazy way of relating to each other and our planet is workable and he has a uh, lovely simple phrase where he's talking about passion and silence and he says at this time in history we need both the silence of the sage and the passion of the activist he said now it's not enough for them to be separate this is a time where that prayer comes together so, the, so this is from Thomas Merton, and if you hear, this is a piece about again about his perception and about his way of relating to the world, from his depth. Think of this dear man as a renunciate, celibate monk, in tough conditions. You read any really tough. He says. One might say, I have decided to marry the silence of the forest. The sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. The sweet, dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife. Out of the heart of that dark warmth comes the secret that is heard only in silence but it is the root of all secrets whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. So perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the virginal point of pure nothingness, 
that is at the center of all loves. I attempt to cultivate this plant without comment in the middle of the night and water it with psalms and prophecies in silence. It becomes the most rare of all trees in the garden, at once the primordial paradise of all sorry at once the primordial yeah paradise of all trees in the garden the cosmic axle the axis mundi and the cross so the axis mundi the the axle of the world one might say i had decided to marry the silence of the forest so where's his his devotion his passion is going right in the sweet dark warmth of the whole world will have to be my wife out of the heart of that dark warmth comes a secret that is heard only in silence but is the root of all secrets whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world Yeah, I just want to thank him for his practice. Yeah. So, let's, I'd like to just guide you into a very short exercise and then we'll go outside for a short, cool night, cool night, little movement before coming back in for the dawning dark of the night, even though it doesn't, takes a while to get dark these days. So take a moment, find your axis mundi. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? But this axis, this center, this axle of the world, your vertical upright midline. And take a moment to breathe. Excuse me. this divine animated spark that sits upright because it still can <laughs> it's true <laughs> and take a moment to bring to mind something that you're passionate about or that you love or that really matters to you and it doesn't have to be something that you think we'd approve of it it's you it's personal to you right something where your passion lights your passion sparks something that matters to you whether it's a cause an issue whether it's your grandchild someone you love deeply uh, crystal palace football team really whatever it is something that you're passionately dedicated to that you feel that your fire lights up and follows easily points in that direction <coughs> it might be a religious imagery you know the buddha the dharma the 
holy something, whatever it is, whoever it is. And just breathe with, <coughs> excuse me, breathe with the sense or the image of that. And as you let that come, see if you can really keep faith with your own body and your own upright. Really sense in to your own location so that you're not absorbed into the image or that your whole cathexis of your life force has gone into the image. Really hold your bodily presence and see if you can sense where your love, your spark, your passion is located, if it's located in your being right now. Breathe and ask that question, where in my love for this one, this issue, this cause, where do I sense that passion, that love, that spark? Is it in my heart or my throat or my solar plexus, my belly, genitals, my head, my, maybe all of those. But really keep faith, don't try and make it something other than what's here. And see if you can tend that spark in your own location, release the image. I mean they might hover around nearby somewhere but not the point in this moment. You are the point. If none of this makes any sense, don't worry. Just keep breathing. And maybe let it be mental if it's mental of what you know you're dedicated to through your head. This is also very important. Maybe it's an activity you do, a creative thing, a sport, I don't know, something you love. Maybe it's your practice. And see if you can tend to that fire, hold it close, see what it would be like to relate to this as a divine spark, that same spark in the Sistine Chapel ceiling. same fire that Thomas Merton perceives in the stones, that has his passion in relating to the world and the forest as his beloved. And breathe with that flame or that spark or that sensation, whatever it is. And very gently, in a way, like fanning it. Not to try and make it bigger, but just tending, breathing, opening your attention above and below, side to side, awareness wide, the aperture of your soul getting wider, 
in front and behind you. Breathing and widening the space. The spark may or may not go there, it doesn't matter, but it might. Or you might find the spark in the middle of space. And breathing, and as you sit, just for another minute with your, what you care about most, what you care about most right now, let yourself care about that thing, that being. But really know your locatedness. This is your divine spark. Or, it's not even yours, is it? It's this fire, this life force, animating you, this body that we call me, for the time being. And if the fire becomes like a fire, let it burn. Let it burn. Let your flesh, your bones, Be pervaded by what you truly love. That you truly love. It doesn't have to be hugely passionate. It might be really gentle fire. We don't always have to burn on gas mark 10. It can be really subtle. And ask yourself the question in this moment, you don't have to know forever, but you might, what you want to dedicate this gift to. You might not have a word for it, you might just have a gesture for it. Because offering is usually very natural when we feel filled up. whether it's to your family, to your, to our world, to the Buddha, to the planet, to each other, to the tree outside, you can make it very specific, to all beings, to your mom. Trust what comes in this moment. This is our kind of compass pointing home. And I'm going to teach us a song stroke chant that we can sing as we stand outside in whatever gesture of offering and dedication comes to us as we go out there so it's in english this one and it's it's a it's a gesture of being willing like like thomas burton was willing to do that work and that really opened up his offering to the world
So it's our willingness to bring ourselves fully. So it's in English, the words is, I will bring my heart, I will bring my flesh and bones, I will bring my speech and mind, and let them all come home, whatever our homecoming instinct is. Somebody, somebody once translated the word, word philosophy, they, they called it homesickness, you know, this human longing for home the love of truth, the love, whatever it is we call it, but that homesickness, we want to we wanna come home. It's, it's, in all the, it's in all the traditions, homecoming. So I will bring my heart, I will, I will bring my heart, I will bring my flesh and bones, I will bring my speech and mind and let them all come home. I'll teach you the melody. So it goes, um, I'll do this thing as well so you get this is the up and down bit. I will, I'll do it all the way through once. I will bring my heart. I will bring my flesh and bones. I will bring my speech and mind and let them all come home. I will. I will. I will. I will, when you get it, you can join in. I will bring my heart, I will bring my flesh and bones, I will bring my speech and mind and let them all come home. I will, I will, I will. I will, I will bring my heart, I will bring my flesh and bones, I will bring my speech and mind and let them all come home, I will, I will, I will, I will time. I will bring my heart, I will bring my flesh and bones, I will bring my speech and mind and let them all come home. I will, I will, I will, I will. So we'll, we'll go outside, we'll meet in a couple of minutes. Um, we'll stand in a circle and we'll make a small offering. And if at any point as you change it, you want to change it to thy will, if that's natural to you, you can. See you there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.